0: You are listening to First Church Charlotte. Mark chapter number 12, and we are going to read um, of the passage in the scripture where uh, the religious people of the day are trying to trap Jesus in his words, and they're trying to trick Jesus. Um, we're in M- Mark 12, and we're going to read a verse number 13. Let me just say again, I love the Word of the Lord. I know I say this a lot, but I absolutely mean it. I love teaching the Word of the Lord. I love thinking about the Word of the Lord. And thank all of you who enjoy the Word of the Lord enough to come on Wednesday night and uh, think about it with me. And I want to learn from it. I want to grow from it. We're in Mark 12, Verse number 13, Then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodotians to catch him in his words. To catch him in his words. They're going to bring two different hypotheticals to him to try to trap him. And we'll talk about those. But let me entitle this Bible study tonight, The Great Contrast. The Great Contrast. Before you're seated, smile at your neighbor, say listen really well and amen a lot so we can get out of here at a decent time. Yeah, I knew there would be some agreement over here. That's right. There's, yep. Ralph's weighing in. What are you talking about? You like long church, brother. What are you? (laughs) He'll be here early and stay late. So, (laughs) Uh, all right. So we are continuing through the Book of Mark, and there is there is such depth and richness in it. And I, I every time I go through it, I. It's almost as though I'm humbled to see things that I did not understand, I did not perceive. Uh, there is a tendency, speaking for myself, there is a tendency when reading these verses, which are really verse 13 all the way down through verse number 34. There is this tendency to read it in terms of technicalities. Now, uh, religious people usually are people who are striving to get their lives right. It's very rare to find someone who's very religious, but is not even trying to get their life right. Uh, most religious people have an idea or an ideal to which they are living. They're aiming their life toward that. I think that is kind of foundational. To being religious, if you did not have an ideal to work, to which you were aiming, uh, we probably would need to get another description for you rather than religious. Because the moment you say uh, religious about somebody, it is as though they they have this this idealized way of living a manner of being, and this is not a bad thing. This is a good thing. Um, religions, we uh, we are Christians, of course, and we believe there is only one way uh, to eternal life, and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. But we do not make enemies of other religions. We simply try to give them a twofold testimony. The first testimony is the testimony of our words, and that is when we share with them the good news. Yes? Yes? The second testimony is the testimony of our lives, where we show them Christian charity and we live out Christian faith. And even if they refuse one type of testimony, there's always a very good chance they can be touched by the other type of testimony. and so it is important for us as believers to both speak our faith and to live our faith. Can I have some good agreement in the house on that? We must We must speak that faith and we must live that faith. and so uh, the people that Jesus are being met with are religious people. Now let me remind you, this is Tuesday. Of the week of Jesus' crucifixion. It is Tuesday. These questions are being answered. What is going to happen on Friday? He is going to be taken into custody and he's going to be crucified. And what's going to happen on Sunday? Yes, you know the story. We celebrate it. It is a wonderful, wonderful hope for all of us mortal beings. Christ became the first fruits of all of us who need eternal life. He lived, he died, and then he arose forevermore. This is Tuesday. He has Wednesday and Thursday. He'll be betrayed on Thursday night. And so this is kind of the sequence of events that you would want to understand. This is right at the end of his ministry. This is a time for final words, a time for final acts. And so he goes to the the temple and there he is uh, showing forth the end of his ministry. He has given final words to his disciples. And he's given final words to the crowd. And so everything we read really from this, uh, really from Mark chapter uh, uh, number, the 10, where he sets his face toward Jerusalem and starts walking toward it, having told his disciples what's going to happen to him there. And they're astonished that he's going to go through with it. Uh, from that moment, we're in a very short few days and few hours. And so uh, we are seeing a lot of compression. We're seeing a lot of things come to to completion. Um, He is presented by this religious crowd, and he shows Uh, impatience with it. He shows disgust with it. I'm sorry these lights are going on and off and it's terrible to have distractions because what you end up taking away from the service is not the word, but the distractions of the service. So I apologize for that. Let's try to push through it if we can. And so um, he he is here and he is already showing his, shall we say, disgust of the Uh, way they have done religion. Now, are they following the law he gave them? They would say yes. Are they honoring the elders he gave them? They would say yes. Are they honoring the patriarchs he gave them? They would all say yes. They have organized their whole life around keeping with fanatical detail the Mosaic law. They've organized their whole being. They've organized their society, their hierarchy of social value. They've organized everything around this reality of mosaic law and culture. And Jesus comes in and he overturns the money to, 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 uh, changers' tables. Uh, he basically causes a scene of sorts, and uh, he says, "Look, you guys, you guys have made." this house this house that was supposed to be a house of prayer for all people, that would have been uh, very controversial to Jewish years, you have made this into a den of thieves. And uh, it's, it's, it's interesting there. We, we talked about this. I don't have time to go through it again, although there's more. If we went through it again, we would learn new things and see new depths. And um, so uh, now he has, he has come to this moment where his religious foes, he is not being attacked by sinners. I want you to see see that. Whether they are Sadducees, whether they are uh, Pharisees, or whether they are Herodians. Uh, A Herodian is someone who supports the rule of Herod. That's why they called him by using the proper noun Herod into an adjective that titles a group, a political group. They're Herodians. They support Herod's rule. They are a large political party, and you have all three of them. All of them consider themselves observant Jews. And they, all of them, are trying to trap Jesus. Um, This is a great contrast, because this is what I want you to see. Now, full, full confession. When I started studying for this, I started to go again, once again, as I've done before, I started to go through the technical arguments that are being involved here. I will give you the first of them by way of summation. The first of them is, should we pay taxes to Rome? Why does this matter? This matters because the most important thing in Jewish life, is the reality of their oppression by Rome? They want God to set them free from Rome. They want the Messiah to throw off the yoke of Roman oppression. This is probably why Judas forced the moment of betrayal, he probably thought that Jesus was going to use that as a moment to throw off the Roman Empire and force that war of insurrection against rule of the day. Uh, they want to be freed from Rome. Jesus wants them to be freed from their sins. We are oftentimes at odds with what we think is best and what God thinks is best and there's only one way to rightly handle that to humble ourselves and say not my way your way not my wish your wish not my will thy will be be done can i have a, 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 a amen uh, but- this religious crowd, is they're, they're struggling with this because Jesus' way is not appealing to the flesh at all. What do you mean I have to live uh, the, a certain way where I value others and I serve others and even my religion is a religion that includes others and this drives them nuts. This is not the way that religious culture of any religious background orders itself and Jesus is just turning things upside down and he's a threat and they can all agree whether they support Herod, whether they are Sadducee or uh, shall we say a Jews with Jewish faith but Greek Philosophies, or whether they are Pharisees who uh, eschew all of that and they say we want to be Jewish in faith and Jewish in civil and cultural life. Whatever they are, they all can agree, and this is important, whether they support Herod or the Sadducees or the Pharisees, they all agree on this. Jesus is turning everything upside down. Amen. This whole bi- society cannot survive if we just let the lawbreaker off. And so they bring someone breaking Moses' law to Jesus. What does he do? He says, neither do I condemn you. This is not the way the world works. Whatever their political background, they all agree that Jesus is a threat. Uh, this This is never uh, I know I, I probably talk about this too much, but it 's just astonishing to me, and it never fails to astonish me and so here you have what they care about what do they care about? You have this issue of Rome, and so they create a lose lose scenario for Jesus, and this is the lose lose should we pay taxes to Rome okay so 20 years ago, uh, at this time, about 20 years before this, there had been an insurrection uh, by the uh, within the uh, the Jewish nation against Rome, and they had uh, refused to pay tribute. And of course, Rome marched their armies in. Rome is has uh, great organizational innovation, and the strength of the Roman Empire is their organizational innovation. And they marched their organized armies and their efficient um, everything. They marched right in and they put it down, and they put them to the sword, and they crucify him by the hundreds, and they line the roads with those crucified bodies, and uh, you get the idea. They, this is fresh in the memory. It's fresh defeat. And the average Jew is very sympathetic to the zealots who want to throw off Roman over Uh, uh, control and that overlording of of a one kingdom over another. And they would love it. So if Jesus says you should pay your taxes, they say it's going to split the crowd from supporting him. Uh, If he says you shouldn't pay your taxes, then we'll go tell the Romans and they will come and accuse him of fermenting and fostering a, a revolution or another rebellion. The Romans are very sensitive to that. And you can see that in Roman history. And so, Uh, here is their idea of a lose-lose. Well, Jesus is not ensnared by the uh, small efforts of, of humanity, and he says, well, bring me a coin. Now, this is what's astonishing. They do not bring him a shekel. That's awesome. Why? Because it's at the temple. The temple only accepts certain kind of coins. And the local currency is a shekel. Uh, the, the, the coin, if I remember correctly, this is in my notes, so forgive me if I'm not uh, exact on this. The coin that is accepted by the temple, we talked about it a few weeks ago, is actually of the, the, the mint of one of the neighboring uh, kingdoms. Uh, that is the, most, the largest maritime uh, trading kingdom. And then the Roman, you can only pay uh, taxes to Rome in denarii which is the Roman currency. So you have the local currency, shekels. You have the... Temple currency, which is uh, the nearby um, merchant nation, and then you have the Roman, and it's just currencies, just like we have currencies today. And uh, they bring him a coin from Rome. If they had brought him another one, it might have been a little bit more awkward. But um, God knows how to move things as need they need to be moved. So, all of you who are facing confusion and fear in your life, let this little moment be a quiet reminder that God. God can put the right coin in the right hand at the right time. If God can put a coin in the mouth of a fish. He could put the right coin in the hand of the right bystander, and here they come with a denarii, and Jesus doesn't answer the question at all. He simply posits this. Whose image is on the coin? Well, of course, uh, it's the image of uh, Tiberius. And so, uh, you see, at this moment, he says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar, and unto gods what is God's. And they're so disappointed, because it was never really about Rome. That's what they cared about. It was about trapping Jesus, you see. And then the next question they bring to him, and this is the great contrast, and I want us all to perceive it. Uh, The the, the next question is, okay, so there's this huge disagreement between Sadducees who do not believe in uh, eternal life and resurrection after the dead and Pharisees who do. Uh, And that is this. The the Sadducees have trapped the Pharisees in one of their assertions. And the assertions say, if you're married down here, you're going to be married up there. So the Sadducees loving this kind of Greek sophist arguments. They're like, okay, so if a guy marries wife number or if a woman marries husband number one and he dies and then somebody else dies and then somebody else dies and then they get remarried. When they get to eternal life, who's going to be married to who? Now, okay, Jesus shakes his head as it were and says, look, you guys just don't, you you don't have a clue. Um, uh, Humanity's biological relations are the way they are in the realm of the flesh. He doesn't say this, but roughly he says this. Um, uh, And that's how we know one another in marriage through this biological necessity. Uh, In our, in, in a future day, that is not going to be how we know one another. And Jesus really, in a way, just kind of avoids it all. Just saying, look, you guys, you just, you don't get it at all. You don't get it at all. So here's what I want you to see. What does Jesus care about? And you see the great contrast that is happening right here. Jesus has come to Jerusalem knowing what he will face. He knows he is going to be beaten. He knows he is going to be bruised. He knows from the prophecy that they're going to pluck his beard. He knows he's going to suffer many things. He knows that he's going to die a horrible death of crucifixion, which in spite of the intense pain in your hands and in your feet, which ironically are some of the highest nerve clusters in your body, in spite of driving the nails through the hands and the feet, you actually die on the cross by suffocation. Uh, Because as you hang there, the muscles pull and you compress your lungs and you get where you're breathing shorter and shorter as you hang there and you literally if you do not die from blood loss if you do not die from trauma uh, you will literally begin to suffocate slowly so imagine being hanged but the strangulation is going to take seven hours uh, there was a punishment like that in the east where they sorry for being morbid but let's not just jump over the sacrifice of the scripture okay let's 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 take a moment he died for us the least we can do is appreciate the price not just the price of sin, but the human price of the flesh of god suffering and in and, and this there 's this one really morbid way to kill somebody in the east as part of the capital punishment of 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 either I want to say india uh, don 't quote me on that i 'm way off my notes, but they, they they put a noose around your head and they have a, a thing and they, and they, they choke you one swivel at a time. So they, they swivel it, and it tightens a, just an eighth of an inch, and they leave you, and you're breathing harshly. Then they just turn it again, and they strangle you slowly over hours. That is similar what happens to someone in a state of crucifixion, except in this situation, uh, you can imagine the problem of... Uh, having the pain in your hands and in your feet. And the reason why they would break the legs when they wanted them to die, because once they, sorry again, but once they break the legs, the person can no longer pull themselves up to breathe. So to live, you have to pull all your weight and push all your weight on nails through your hands and feet. And you have to choose agony or oxygen. Agony or oxygen. And there you hang. Yes, morbid, sorry. Well, I'm not sorry. Um, so here's this reason why Jesus is here. He is saying, not my will, thy will be done. And why is he doing this? Because our righteousness wasn't good enough to get us into heaven. Why, why is he doing this? That our, 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 our works are not enough. They're not enough. We need mercy in our life. I, fancy pants preacher up here, I need mercy in my life. I, never, my friend, I have some friends uh, in some of the sports I do, and they've lived some crazy lives, and they laugh at me because I've never done nothing. They always tease me about being, you know, you've never done nothing. And they're right. I haven't, By their standards, I've never done nothing, but I wouldn't trade my life for any of theirs. You see what I'm saying? <laughs> uh, but this is what I want you to see. Even if you've never done nothing, <laughs> you're not good enough. Christ says, you give me your sin, I'll give you my righteousness, and you can make heaven your home. And then we can live together forever, a universe fixed, a world made whole. And so why is he here? He is here to be the perfect sacrifice, the perfect tabernacle, the perfect altar, the perfect high priest, all of that, all those images in the book of Hebrews. That he might bring us to God. This is why the cross is so is so important in our life, and we uh, found all of our uh, salvational hope upon that cross, that moment of redemptive substitution where Christ made it possible. Now, why are the religious people there? So this great contrast is what does Jesus care about? And what do the people who think they are right care about? And you see this, this, the shocking difference. Jesus seems to care a lot about people, hence Calvary. (laughs) You understand what I'm saying? Uh, hence his willingness to love people and care about people. Um, he values people intensely. Um, the, the, the religious people they, they, uh, the, of this time, um, they they love uh, discussing their, their own interests. We're all of us the prisoner of our own interests. Um, I sometimes wish that I could get interested in certain professional sports because then I would have something to talk to with people I see randomly. I'm always jealous of my brother because my brother can walk in to anywhere there's men and have an instant conversations going along, you know. He can walk in like, well, who do you think's gonna win the uh, basketball bowl? <laughs> Is there a basketball bowl? Um, who's gonna win the, and, and instantly as this conversation going? I I walk into I, I go to places they're like, who's gonna win tonight? I'm like, probably my wife. She won the most nights that I've lived with her. <laughs> I pretty much go home and say, surrender, surrender all. All to thee, my blessèd charm. Boy, I was for you, honey. Going on 25th anniversary. I'm excited. So, so um, you can't make yourself like something you don't like. You see what I'm saying? You just can't. It's you just if you're not interested, you're like, okay, you know. Oh wow, a three pointer. Is there a four pointer? You know. <laughs> yeah. I'm making it worse than it really is. I really do know a little bit about sports, but um, so they they, they really. They they have things they care about. The Sadducees and the Pharisees, they are deep. Read their writings. They have their own separate histories. A lot of that stuff is on the, literally, uh, there's there's academic libraries where have a lot of these things on the internet now. It's published. You can go back and look in it. It's sometimes difficult to wade through, but it's all there. They care very much about this issue of who's going to be married to who in heaven. They care intensely. And if you don't agree with them, they will cut you off. This is the great contrast. They care ever so much. They care about Rome. You see what they care about? And then you have the great contrast between what they care about and what Jesus cares about. And so they want to bring this issue of taxes to Caesar. They want to bring this issue of who is going to be married to who in the uh, resurrection. And then one of them, and this is the great contrast that speaks to me. One of the scribes come, and having heard them reasoning together, and perceiving that Jesus had answered them well, he doesn't come As a representative of the people who are trying to trap or trick Jesus, he's just suddenly aware that this man has insight and this man has wisdom. And he has his own question he wants to ask. He is not part of the scheme. He has his own question to ask. And he says, "Uh, Lord, what is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God... The Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment, and the second like it is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. This is the great contrast. What do the people in the tabernacle care about. They care about this Roman problem. They care about who's right about technical theological disagreements. They want to argue about whose wife's going to be whose. And I'll tell you whose wife she's going to be, whichever one of them suckers she liked the best. That's whose wife she's going to be. And if it ain't you, honey, you got to sweet spirit because you're already in heaven. I mean, women aren't cattle. You don't own them. <laughs> they have a vote. Can I have an amen from all the women? <laughs> and so, that's what they care about, all of this stuff. And here is the contrast between technical arguments, between what to do with this Roman situation, between what they care about and what Jesus cares about, this is the great contrast. One of them present, who evidently is not a part of the scheme, not a part of the trickery, he perceives that Jesus has wisdom that he is, perhaps, it's surprising, he answers these tricky questions. These are the toughest questions that Sanhedrin can come up with to trap Jesus. And Jesus blows through them like there's nothing to it. And perceiving that Jesus doesn't have a problem with the problem of man. He's like, oh, okay, what? All right. I know we're fighting about and disagreeing and all that. What's the greatest commandment? Jesus establishes the theme of the Old Testament and the theme of the New Testament. The theme of the Old Testament and the theme of the New Testament. First of all, we have to get right with God. Can I have an amen? We have to get right with God. You cannot trick God by pretending to be something you're not. You can't hide behind someone else's relationship with God. God. You need to have a relationship with God. He loves you enough to show up in your house and knock on your heart door. He loves you enough to come in and sup with you. You've got to care. It doesn't matter if I care. It doesn't matter if your neighbor cares. It doesn't matter if your husband or your wife cares. You've got to care. And I want to say, thank God you're here on a Wednesday night because you care if you're here on a Wednesday night. And if you get that relationship right, it will show itself forth by that you have this vertical relationship, right? It expresses itself in a horizontal relationship. This is the point of the uh, uh, the, the, the last books of the New Testament written by John, the beloved disciple. And he said, uh, look, he says it. He repeats himself repeatedly. It's something, I, a theme I go over in First Steps when I'm talking about the culture of our church and who we're trying to be. Don't say you love God if you can't love your neighbor. Don't say you love God if you can't love your brother. Because we owe our, the people a Around us a certain amount of love because God loved us. If you just wait until someone you know, likes your favorite team and compliments your new shoes and then you show the love of God to them. How are you different than Bob anywhere? Forgive me, Bob. You understand what I'm saying? Even the heathen do that, Jesus says. We show that this relationship is right by having an expression of this love and it's extended this way. This is the great contrast between a religion of the flesh and a religion of the spirit. A religion of the flesh is primarily in being interested in being right and being recognized and being exalted. That is the natural tendency of our flesh. We want to be right. I'm right, you're wrong. Because that makes us feel like God has to take us in heaven because we were right. Right? We forget about the passage where Jesus says some of the people are going to be uh, seemingly be right, but I don't know their heart. Okay, so uh, we love to be right. Yes, just like them. We love to be recognized i just love someone to recognize me. If some of you guys would come up to me after church and lie to me and just tell me, I'll totally give you an indulgence if you'll just lie to me. I'll write you an indulgence and sign my name to it. All you have to say is, Brother Nathan, you know, nobody teaches like you teach. That way you could mean that however you want to mean it. I don't care. Just tell me. I love some recognition. I'm just like you. We love to be right and we love to be recognized. This is the great contrast. And here is Jesus, the only one who was righteous, but he's trading his righteousness because he loves you. The only one who has power is laying his power down because he loves you. The only one who really met the criteria of the law, he is saying, I'll trade all my goodness for you. That's the great contrast right there. And we see in this passage uh, where Uh, Jesus says to him, and I love this, I'm almost done. Just hear me before you check out. Just hear me. This moment of the scripture is so powerful. The scribe speaks back to Jesus. And says, well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth. For there is one God and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, with all the strength. And to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And Jesus, look look at the scripture. Jesus saw that he answered widely. He said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Think about that. Over here, you have people, they want desperately to be right. They want desperately to be recognized. They want desperately to be reassured. All of those are the human response to context in a religious setting. You want to be right, you want to be recognized, and you want to be reassured. Boom. There you are. And Jesus speaks to this one man, pointing out the themes of, The main stuff. And when the man gets it, Jesus says this to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. So let me make this confession. Um, I want to be right, but I don't want to be right at the expense of people I'm supposed to love. There's a time to fold your tent. I'll never forget I've only had one serious, seriously educated uh, theological person who had a serious theological education come through first steps. Uh, in other words, one who disagreed with me about anything. Okay, and uh, he—some of you know him. He's a great guy. I won't tell you who he is. He—he um, uh, he, in college he he studied at a school that bas- offered basic reform theology and therefore the Calvinism was strong with him. <laughs> and uh, uh, we, we are not, we, we believe in predestination, we just don't believe in predestination of the individual. We believe in predestination of the church. And then we as individuals choose whether or not we will be part of the church. Well, he, having been educated in a classical reform theology, uh, he believed in predestination of the individual. And so um, he, the only time in First Steps class someone has argued with me, and uh, he uh, he knew this Bible. He, I'll give him credit. He was quoting scripture. He knew his Bible. And everyone else was like, ha, 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 ha. Jesus, 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 and um, and you know what I did? You know what I did. I did not earnestly contend for the faith. I could have. I could have offered him nine different applied morality problems. Uh, if you ever argue with a Calvinist, go straight to applied morality. It's a philosophical argument, but it works great against Calvinist theologians. Because why would God punish a born loser who succeeds at doing what he was born to do by sending him to judgment forever? Problems of applied morality. don't have time for that right now. The point is, I could have argued, but my goal was not to be right. My goal was to show him love. And you know what I did? I com- In front of everybody, I complimented on knowing the Bible. I complimented them on those scriptures. And I said, I would love to talk to you. I'm just basically, yes, I know for you strong doctrine people, I wasn't being strong. And I let down, and that's why the church is being destroyed. <laughs> I want to be right, but I don't want to be right at the expense of people that I'm supposed to be reaching. That does not mean I have to accept false doctrine. That does not mean I have to trade the truth. All that means is when, when we are done arguing, whether they feel like they won or I won, I want them to be able to say, yeah, but he's a great guy. I, 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 I like him. I feel like he, I, I feel, like in other words, the testimony is not lost. So um, uh, I'm, I'm trying to quit here. Uh, so all these three things, uh, we want to be right. Uh, we want to be recognized, and we want to be reassured. Those are all good things, all right? But they cannot come at the expense of the people we're supposed to be reaching. You see what I'm saying? And we do not have to trade the truth in order to do that. We can do it wisely, with sound doctrine and gentle hands. That's <coughs> all stand thank you, Lord Jesus, for your people. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the opportunity to come together as as a single group of people that are striving together to know you and walk with you. I thank you, Lord, for all of these wonderful people. I pray your blessing upon them today. I pray the love of God to each one of us today in a manner that we take into our lives. We don't want to just know your love kind of on a a Bible study level. We want to take that love into our life and let it suffuse every part of our little world, the friends we have, the family we have. Lord Jesus, help us to get it right. Help us to understand the large picture, the bigger things. In Jesus' name, I pray. In Jesus' name, I pray. Somebody help me and praise the Lord right now all across the house before we're dismissed. We bless your name, O God. We bless your name, O God. We praise your name today. Amen, amen, amen. I just want to remind all of you in case anybody's nervous, which I don't think you are, but just in case, I did not say that we trade our doctrine. I didn't say we quit believing our doctrine. We can hold our doctrine. I think you guys get what I'm trying to say. and we can love people. God bless you. Have a great week. We'll see you Sunday. It's going to be a wonderful day together in the house of the Lord. God bless you. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come join us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road at the corner of Shamrock Drive, Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m., and Bible Study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Online, find us at firstchurchclt.com or like us on Facebook or Twitter. We hope to see you soon. Come worship with us.